good evening. I'm uh, Claire Hemmings. I'm the director of the Gender Institute at LSE, and I'm delighted to welcome you to the second lecture in this year's Gendering the Social Sciences series. Uh, the um, lecture will be given by Professor Robin Wiegman from Duke University, not LSE uh, Czech, as was previously up there, <laughs> which will be very nice, actually, uh, and is co-hosted by the sociology department. But before I introduce Robin, let me give you a bit of information about the series and about tonight's event. Gendering the Social Sciences is a lecture and seminar series that allows us to invite international leaders in the field to reflect on and extend current debates in interdisciplinary transnational gender studies. Uh, it allows us to showcase innovative, new and emerging work in the field and to promote the importance of a gendered approach to social science scholarship, both within the LSE and more widely. Previous speakers in the series include Amina Mama from the Centre for Gender Studies at Cape Town and Wendy Brown from Berkeley. And our next event will be an all-LSE panel on literature and crime on December the 2nd, uh, followed by Nadia Al-Ali from SOAS speaking on women and war in the Middle East early next term. So you can see the kind of range of the different things that we're uh, trying to do in this series that is unique to LSE. Uh, the, this evening's lecture will, uh, just to give you a sense of things, will run for about an hour, uh, 45 minutes to an hour, um, with around 30 minutes for questions afterwards. And then after that, the, uh, after the lecture and questions, we'll invite you to um, uh, the reception afterwards on the fifth floor of the old building in the senior dining room. So we hope that as many of you as possible will be able to join us there. And so let me introduce our speaker for this evening. Uh, Robin Wiegman is Professor of Women's Studies and Literature and former director of the Women's Studies Programme at Duke from 2001 to 2007. Her books include American Anatomies, Theorizing Race and Gender from 1995, Who Can Speak, Identity and Critical Authority, also 95, Feminism Beside Itself, also 95, very busy. <laughs> AIDS and the National Body, 97. The Future of American Studies, Futures of American Studies, 2002. And Women's Studies on Its Own, 2002. She's also the editor with Interpol Greywall and Karen Kaplan of the Duke University book series, Next Wave, New Directions in Women's Studies. Robin's areas of inquiry, as her titles indicate, range across feminist theory, queer theory, American studies, critical race theory, feminism and media studies, which sounds in a sense uh, rather drier than it is, because one of the remarkable things about Robin is her ability to enliven theory, provide it with a history, texture, describe its capacities, limitations, and abilities to subject or interpolate its readers and thinkers. She's a passionate advocate of the field of feminist studies and a loving critic of its institutional and political patterns and practices. Her forthcoming book from Duke University Press is titled Object Lessons, which pays attention to relations of identification and affect in the constitution of identity as an academic object of study. Uh, in, in the book as a whole, she reflects on the progress of gender, the conscious life of whiteness studies, heteronormativity and queer studies, and the internationalization of American studies. 
Tonight's talk is drawn from the opening chapter, Doing Justice with Objects, that considers the turn from women to gender as it has been articulated as a means of correcting the universalisms, critical elisions, and political incapacities of academic feminism's founding paradigm. The title, Learning in Brackets How, that's not a Ben uh, to cite Judith Butler, is apparently not about Butler at all, <laughs> but about her signature as a sign of critical value for practitioners in the field, what Judith Butler does for us and with us. So with no further ado, I'm going to pass you over to Robin. great to be here and I recognize um, some faces from when I was here last year. For those of you who were at the talk a year ago, um, you'll see a relationship between that conversation and much of what I'm talking about here, hopefully not too much overlap. I'm also here this week, what Claire didn't say to you is that I'm also here this week to run a dissertation workshop with the students in um, the gender at the Gender Institute and this was something we unfabbed last year when I was was here um, in part because I had given a talk that was uh, something about called Knowing What We Mean that really thought about writing, our habits of writing, and about the problem of coming in, uh, of actually inhabiting the aspiration of your own critical theory. So, you know, knowing what we mean when we say that all subjects are contingent is very different from the way that a lot of us write as academic subjects. We tend to forget our own historical contingency. We tend to forget that knowledge is always partial. I mean, we say it, but then we have to write as academic subjects who are constantly performing our knowing, right? You know, um, this talk is related to that in a certain um, sense, and I chose it because it's, um, it's a chapter that has been highly revised from earlier publications. And I mean, I chose it specifically so that we can do something with it for those of you who are taking the dissertation workshop, because I, uh, many years ago, published something called Object Lessons on Men, Masculinity, and the Sign of Women in Signs. And in that paper, when I, which was the first time I used the phrase Object Lessons, which is now the title of the book project, I was thinking about how gender, how women had been displaced by gender in the U.S. Academy in particular as a way to signify the field. But that essay really focused on one piece of that displacement, which was the study of men and masculinity, and it spent its time, spent my time in that essay tracing out how men and masculinity had become objects of study that challenged the centrality of women and all the debates about that, which go back to the late 80s and the early 90s. In a later reiteration of that same conversation for a book I edited called Women's Studies of, on Its Own, I then used the notion of the progress of gender to start to reframe that earlier piece and to think about how, because a few years later, all these programs in the U.S. were changing their names from women's studies to gender studies or an even odder locution, women's and gender studies. And that locution is very strange since when I made my way into feminist studies, and I have to admit the 70s, um, women and gender were synonymous. When you said gender, you meant women. They were not disarticulated. But the course of my own academic career through graduate school, et cetera, and then my work um, as a professor, you know, they, it started to diverge. 
And the divergence happened first or often around, as I was saying, men and masculinity, but then also around sexuality, such that gender, in some programs when they call it women's and gender studies, they mean sexuality studies, they mean queer studies. Um, now, increasingly, it can also mean trans studies and intersex, so that, it, that the word gender is, has the capacity now to mean almost everything except women in that locution. So, in my middle age, which is what these classes signify, I'm trying to figure out how it is that a term that I, that, that was so central to the way in which my first um, allegiances and critical practices were are organized around, which meant women, gender and women, now means not women and is in this scene of proliferation. And um, I thought that the also that the iteration and the transformation of the essays, as I've been thinking about it over time, would be useful for the dissertation workshop because many of us uh, write, the long process of writing a dissertation has you in different temporalities, I, at least that's how I think about it, and about your own intellectual subjectivity. When you come into a program, you kind of think in one way that can be transformed. You might start writing on something, but then you do a bunch of reading and something else, and when you enter the chapter again, it, you're interested in everything you weren't interested in before, and then you have that horrible sense of how do you bring what you wrote before into play with what you're writing now, and if you're like me, you don't want to throw any words away because you've suffered over them. And so you're then trying to figure out how to mesh these disparate temporalities. And so I thought that since we were going to spend a lot of time, these are the folks in the front row here, talking about our anxiety around our own writing, that it would be good if I performed a, one of my ways out of it, which is just to keep writing the same essay over and over <laughs> <laughs> until you finally are sick of it, which I now am, and so the book will be done soon. And that's the way it goes. Um, so this chapter has four parts. Oh, and the other problem of writing something for like 10 or 15 years of a project is that it gets longer and longer. So this chapter has four parts. I'm going to read from three of them very truncatedly and sort of just talk my way through another. But the four parts, there's a little introduction. Part one is called Transferential Objects. Part two is called What Was Women, meaning the category of women. Part three is called Critical Realism. And part four is called When Gender Fails, meaning gender the category. And um, in calling this Learning to Cite Judith Butler, I mean, it is in a sense a lure, um, but I'm trying to think, as you'll see, this chapter is about the disciplinary apparatus within which the relation to our objects of study is formed. I'm making an argument that the object of study and the way that we cultivate our relationship to it is a disciplinary practice, not a political one, in the way that feminist knowledge is often approaches it. It has a politics, but it is not the same thing as the political relationship to the phenomenon that the object itself wants to cite. Hopefully that will become clearer as I talk. But from my point of view, the institutionalization of women or gender studies or feminist knowledges in the university has institutionalized a particular understanding of the political and of its political relation to the world. And, that is it, and it's that political understanding that is its disciplinary apparatus. So unlike people who say that the problem with the institutionalization of feminism is that it has lost its politics, 
I want to say that it's a certain version of politics that has been institutionalized in the disciplinary apparatus, and that's what I would like us to think, you know, sort of think about. Um, the other thing, let me just emphasize, is that the, the book, just like the chapter, is really about the U.S. University. And one of the important things that the transnational, one of the ways in which the transnational puts a great deal of pressure on people like me who are Americanists is to try to understand the specificity of the U.S. context. Now, that specificity is also, I mean, it's very interesting in context like this where the critical currency of, say, Judith Butler, you know, as part of her uh, position in the U.S. Academy and the U.S. Academy's position as a hegemonic knowledge formation globally, you know, what that means is that ideas and, and conversations travel. You inherit Judith Butler in a particular kind of way, um, but the, the situatedness of her discourse in the U.S. Academy may be less apparent as it travels. Um, certainly she doesn't write with its, uh, how it operates for her. I mean, as a philosopher in particular, we get a lot of dehistoricization. But I'm interested in our conversation to find out how much of what I'm talking about about the U.S. resonates here, how much it is absolutely in a, inadequate or, or, you know, doesn't meet, divergent from the way that gender and the relation between gender and women operates um, in the U.K. or in the, I know some people are wor working on other um, global sites too. So this chapter traces the afterlife of life of one particular object, women, meaning the category of women, whose well-rehearsed failure to remain conceptually coherent and universally referential for all women within the field domain of women's studies has inaugurated a turn toward a host of new investments organized increasingly under the sign of gender. While many academic feminists of the U in the U.S. of my generation remember when gender was a syn synonym for women, the term has come to collate much of what the category of women is said to exclude, as I've already said, from men, masculinity, and queer sexualities, which was the first movement, to now trans and intersex identities and analysis, which is the second movement of this transformation. Hence, one now encounters gender as a means both to describe the constraints of heteropatriarchal social formation and to figure subversion, disidentification, and dissonance in identity attachments in everyday life. It operates as a coordinate for approaching the complexities of social subordination, what I think of as kind of classic intersectionality, and as an analytic for traveling or for unraveling, I should say, a wide range of discursive economic and geopolitical processes. It functions as well to denote emergent identities and is implicated in, if not central, to the practices and politics of contemporary <coughs> social movements of various kinds. In serving as a, range, as a referent for a range of objects of study and analytic practices, as well as the subjects that might be said to mirror them, gender as a category performs the optimistic hope that a relation of compatibility, if not consistency, between critical practice and field domain can finally be won. And that is in reference to changing the name of the field from women's studies to gender studies in the U.S. But why is the object of study the animating scene of the field's political investment? Why is the, the, the name change has created enormous controversy and debate in the U.S. for the last 20 years? Why is the name um, as the why the name as the symbolic practice, if not a critical enactment of justice? And why the implicit concomitant, concomitant belief that gender, unlike women, 
will be a match for everything that we want from it. As these questions insinuate, I am aim neither to refuse nor to confirm gender as the figure for the field's contemporary reconfiguration, but to explore the distinctly disciplinary implications of what I would call a field imaginary that uses objects and analytics of study as the means to define, value, and enact its commitment to justice. By calling this talk, Learning How to Cite Judith Butler, I want to reference the power of the critical habits that we learn as the means to write our belonging to the field. In this sense, I am less interested in Butler per se or her work than in the field imaginary in which we learn to perform our relation to critical practice as a form of political agency. Now, the truth is that Judith Butler's work has taught us in many ways to do this. I mean, each iteration of her project seeks to answer the critiques that have come before it. Each seeks to, you know, to us to go beyond and to have the proper way to think the problem of the political that we inhabit. And, so, and she has a great investment in critique as the way to do that. Um, so it's not incidental. It's not just her critical capital, but also the way that her work has figured for us, the, for many people anyway, the capacity of continually elaborating your project in the hopes of having a theoretical uh, formulation of, what, uh, of how to resolve the problems that you face. Um, all this, even as she constantly says, you know, everything is contingent, knowing is partial, etc. But nonetheless, I think the body of the work does move in that direction of toward trying to have theoretical resolution to the problems that it names. So, part one, transferential objects. In Women's Studies on the Edge, a special issue of Differences published in 1999, Leora Oslander opens the volume by considering the horizons of study offered by gender. Her essay, which is titled, Do Women's Plus Feminist Plus Men's Plus Lesbian and Gay Plus Queer Studies Equal Gender Studies? Question mark. Offers an affirmative answer to the question the title poses, finding in the move from women to gender studies an intellectual expansion, such that, quote, the study of masculinity, feminist gender studies, and gay, lesbian, and queer studies each have an equal voice. Positioned as the volume's optimistic answer to the dystopic diagnosis of Wendy Brown's controversial The Impossibility of Women's Studies, which is also in that volume, Auslander's keynote offers assurance that the edge can become an intellectually cutting and politically compacious one when gender reconfigures the priority of women. Now, when I say these words, gender and women, remember I'm talking about their status as a category. Okay? And I'll just kind of do this. As the mathematical formula of the title suggests, gender accumulates its critical capital by coming after, after the fact, so-called, of women's categorical failure, after differences among women riveted the field, after the public political crisis of feminism, after the field's contentious battle over men, after the identity attachments of gay and lesbian studies, after the deconstructive invocations of queer. In being both destination and summation, gender thus signifies and exceeds its constituent parts. In large part, um, Auslander's essay details the routes by which gender emerged to claim oversight and priority, the hope it carried with it, and the worry its progress raised along the way. First, the hope. As she tells it, the Center for Gender Studies at her institution, the University of Chicago, was a collaboration between scholars in women's studies and those working within gay and lesbian studies. For reasons both intellectual and institutional, the center's founders rejected the idea of 
establishing separate programs, taking gender studies as the name as a way to link and expand both women's studies and gay and lesbian studies. For women's studies in particular, as she tells it, this would entail attention to a range of issues that had not been sufficiently foregrounded by what Auslander calls the women's studies paradigm. That paradigm was centered initially, she writes, on documenting women's experiences and discovering their past actions in contexts that emphasize women's difference from men, unquote. I mean, this is familiar, right? Its dissolution was the consequence of four developments, as she maps it. And these are familiar, and Claire Hemings has written about them, uh, uh, you know, about the narrative of this dissolution in telling feminist stories. The, first of all, the demise of universal woman wrought by critical attention to hierarchies of race, sexuality, and class. Second, the turn towards gender as a relational system. There you might think about the work of Joan Scott or a variety of people that said that just to study women outside of the context of gender as a relational structure doesn't tell us much. Um, the three, the emergence of men and masculinity as legitimate objects of feminist inquiry. And four, the rise of critical theory and post-structuralist thought. The hope then for the use of gender was that it would reorganize the field in the aftermath of the failure of the founding paradigm by bringing issues of sexuality, sexual desire, and sexual orientation into critical contact with the study of women's differences, gender as a relational system, masculinity, and emergent theoretical explorations of language, subjectivity, and power. And so expansion, equal voice, and political, greater political capacity on one hand. And then the worries. Auslander cites several worries about what gender, what the move to gender, what, what might be problematic about it, including, as she puts it, the potential eclipse of distinctly political, feminist political commitments, such as, you know, the focus on childcare, reproductive rights, you know, those, those major feminist um, um, issues. The second, the status of race as a category of analysis and the potential whiteness of gender studies. So there's a certain worry that to move in a field committed to intersectionality to the frame of gender is to occlude these, uh, especially race. And it's, it's especially the occlusion of race and not sexuality because of the way that gender is also cultivating a, a referent for sexuality, right? That's at stake here. And the ch three, the challenge of full interdisciplinarity um, as represented by the inclusion of the natural and physical sciences in gender studies projects and programs. The familiarity of these issues actually harkens back to some of the very impulses that Auslander says sent the field from women to gender in the first place. I mean, after all, the centrality of the problem of the inclusion of race with the category of women was one reason that people thought about moving away from women, and yet if the turn to gender brings with it that same, the same problem, right? Nonetheless, she insists after going through a long conversation about this that whatever its difficulties, gender studies is the most powerful model of research we have. My faith in it is not merely an abstract faith the paradigm has enabled both individual and collective projects that would have been impossible without it, unquote. Faith as the relational sign of gender's progress is, of course, a fascinating rhetorical term. All the more significant, given Auslander's assertion that it is not an abstract but a realized one. Still, sustaining faith in an analytic paradigm as a means for pursuing 
equal voice or justice in your relation to your object of study always entails something of an abstraction, which raises in turn the issue of what constitutes evidence, both of the worldliness of the problem and of its transformative solutions. Ostlander's assertion that at her institution, gender has enabled collaborations impossible without its governance as the field's organizing sign is not, of course, for me to dispute. But I want to pause over the political agency that gender is made here to stand for. For if an earlier faith in women's paradigmatic potential revealed more about women's differences in the agencies of capitalism, empire, and heteronormativity than the inaugurating belief in women as a sign for collective transformation, certainly then the turn to gender perpetuates even as it shifts the focus of the founding belief, as now gender becomes the critical term to have faith in, right, in order to, as Auslander puts it, think better and harder about the world and its troubles, as well as to imagine how it might be different, unquote. The contemporary lure of gender must be understood as more than a simple castigation of women through substitution or displacement, as given that gender is here made to bear the promise that women once stood for. And it is this relationship of aspiration and optimism, of attachment and belief, or what Auslander calls faith, and of knowledge then, the knowledge that will cultivate in her progress narrative around gender as a political agency, right, that is at stake in the field imaginary that governs the constellation of women and gender studies in the U.S., both in the late 90s and, I would argue, today. And that's sort of the central piece of what I want to say about the progress of gender shifts the object in which the, uh, on which the faith is based, but not the faith that underwrote the founding paradigm of women's studies, right? Which is that your name, your object of study, and the analytic practice can cohere to guarantee the political agency that you seek to have, uh, the political agency you seek for critical practice to have in the world. So, part two, what was women? As we all know, the most pervasive critique that now attends the narrative of the failure of the founding paradigm, indeed, the very critique that founds the paradigm as essentially failed, is its occlusion of differences among women. This occlusion tends to be narrated in one of two ways, by casting post-structuralist deconstructions of the category of women and race and sexuality-based critiques of the category's universalist deployments as a collaborative endeavor that, respect, that retrospectively undoes the security of an earlier composite women. And um, Claire's project that I've learned a lot from talks about the periodization of the eclipse of women so that, in her, you know, that a lot of the narratives that Claire has read shows that how race, particularly race and sexuality-based critiques are marked as the, is it the 70s or the 80s? And then post-structuralism, 80s, and then post-structuralism is the 90s and so that there's this periodization. In other narratives that I've been looking at, more recent narratives are some from the U.S. Academy. It's, I'm not sure that the, per, that the period, it seems like they're condensed, or they're often um, thought to overlap. And Claire and I were talking about this earlier today, and some of it just depends on what story, what attachment people are trying to come up with by the end of their story, whether or not they make us a, a temporal lag between post-structuralism and race and sexuality critiques or whether or not they fuse them in order to have some kind of transcendent moment. So I have to work that out. But nonetheless, the consequence, of course, 
is that the consensus story of the failure of the women's studies paradigm of women moves with often very little citational sweat to its celebrated conclusion that in its early reliance on women, scholarship in the field tended to assume, as Auslander puts it, that differences among women were less salient than their common sex. For Auslander, this conclusion presents itself as a move towards justice, righting the wrong of the faulty universalism that women is said to engender and revamping the narrative of the field as a tale of redemption. First, for the field, which can now properly locate racism and heterosexism in the past, such that the present is figured as a scene of progress that opens to a non-complicitous future. And second, actually, for the very women, straight, white, middle-class, Western, and most often quintessentially American, at least in the narratives I'm looking at, whose hegemony was under assault by the critique launched against their universalizing use of women. The slander distinction that I just made in the previous sentence between a critique of the category and a critique of the use of the category is crucial, I think, to understanding the role that women now plays in the pedagogy of process, of progress, sorry, that generates the future of the field. Auslander's language is especially instructive here as it reflects a pervasive habit across the study of women, gender, and sexuality to consign the agency of women's failure to the category itself. The crisis, after all, is called the crisis of the category of women. She writes, as research was done on the past and present of women's lives, as attempts were made to theorize women's domination, as scholars expanded their reach across the globe, it became clear that the category of woman, and then of women in the plural, obscured important differences. The category obscured, note the grammatical construction, not that the use of the category obscured, or that the critical apparatus at hand was no match for addressing, addressing the densities of the historical situations in which women became legible as a social entity in the first place, or that the disparate forms of minoritization that attended women's global status as a subordinated majority overpowered the universalizing and retrospectively arrogant hope to speak to and for all women, or that the pedagogical insistence of the field on the transformative ground of the personal was unprepared for the institutionalization of racial and sexual norms that would quickly and radically narrow the composition of the audience that academic feminism addressed, or that the very social movement that was said to inaugurate the field would bring with it a political imaginary that was temporally and geopolitically bound, along with the political vocabulary that had already universalized the conditions of its presence of social movements in the U.S. into an increasingly pat formulations of left agendas for social change. Not then that the difficulties encountered were a consequence of the complexities critical, methodological, historical, geopolitical, linguistic, and ideational of deciphering the entity that the field had committed itself to, such that the very credibility of the field was staked to a calculus of justice as the measure of its success or its failure. I am not saying that no one noted or understood these formidable and mind-numbing problems. They certainly and repeatedly did. But in the shorthand that Auslander and others now use, and yes, yes, I admit, I have used it too, the field narrative takes a shortcut to the future, condemning the category in order to keep open the possibility that critical practice can be free from the social and historical weight that attends it, 
and that a relation of justice can still be achieved. This on its own is an amazing transference, and that's a term I'm interested in using, essentializing the category, not just what it refers to. The performative force of the category obscured thus displaces a range of critical difficulties onto the faulty complicity of the category itself. In this, the progress narratives escape from the referential sign of women can offer the field a fantastic escape from what the category's failure is thought to mean, racism, heterosexism, universalism, and exclusion. What happens in this context, then, to the challenges made by, as Auslander puts it, women of color and lesbians to the universalism of women? Or more to the point, from what location is their critique of the category of women made? After all, in no story of the field's history that I've ever encountered is their critique taken as a remaking of the founding paradigm. Instead, it is made to function as evidence of the essentialized nature of the women's catastrophic categorical failure. This places race and sexuality-based challenges to women's universalism outside the founding paradigm in the very gesture that the citation of such critiques is presented as evidence of their vitality to the field. Paradoxically, then, under the auspices of the progress narrative, the critique by women of color and lesbians is actually used to preserve, it seems to me, the founding paradigm as the exclusive domain of privileged women by defining the category solely as the locus of their privilege. This categorical essentialism, if you will, tends to situate critiques by women of color and lesbians as ends in themselves and not, and not as a powerful critical investment in the possibility of making women adequate to the political aspiration that the founding paradigm ascribed to it. On what terms do we come to read the work of critique as a matter of disidentification alone, as if the massive effort by women of color and lesbians to change the representational dispensation of women was expended with no interest at all in changing the calculus of who was and who was not included in it? Is it really possible that the critique of women's exclusion was not marshaled as a political struggle over inclusion, which is to say as a battle precisely by women of color and lesbians to be included in the referential scope and historical purview of the field's exploration and idealization of women? The idea now that only those who came to be privileged by the exclusionary effects of women had an investment in women as a political unity is willfully ludicrous, it seems to me, enabling, as it does, a totalizing misrecognition of what such critiques were marshaled to do, to fulfill the aspiration of women as a political unity. I want to emphasize this last phrase, political unity, in order to put pressure on our understanding of the political intensity and density of the universalizing gestures that underwrote women, which disappear when the critique of the category of women and the critique of the deployment of the category are wholly converged. An important case to consider in this context is the tradition of standpoint theory, which sought to construct an anti-essentialist understanding of the epistemological and political ground for, women's or for feminism's deployment of women. Scholars thus purposely, at times rigorously, resisted the idea that women's political unity could ever be assumed in advance, approaching it instead as a political achievement. In this regard, women represented a historical emergence, not a natural unity, 
and his political capacity was contingent to varying degrees on the analytic force derived from feminism itself. This is very different than thinking that the category of women assumed common sex in an essentialization of the you know, of what women stood for, of women as a group, you know, as though they were a natural unity to begin with. I think standpoint theory has been un is currently undervalued in what it was trying to do, which was to de-essentialize de and, and figure out how the position from which feminism could articulate its critique of the world had a relation to women's experience, but that experience wasn't determined in, in advance. You know, and even that language sounds like you know, post-structuralism, right? That all the credit post-structuralism gets for all the smart things that feminism does is also really irritating. <laughs> you know, um, Nancy Hartsock followed, for instance, Marx's formulation of the proletariat to develop this line of inquiry, crafting the everyday labor of women as a realm of political activity that could constitute what she called the feminist standpoint. Catherine McKinnon took women to be the consequence of patriarchal gender to such an extent that feminism was the sole means by which any interpretive advantage on them could be achieved. Patricia Hill Collins' now definitive work situated the experience of black women as the standpoint that would be rendered theoretically important by black feminist intellectual work. In her project, the political agency is black feminist intellectual work, not black women's experience per se. It's an important distinction. To be sure, there was scholarship that trafficked in essentialist and mythological formulations of women, and even the work I have cited was not without error in its attempt to sustain social constructionist understandings of women's experience as the ground for emancipatory analysis. The point I am making, though, is this, that to the extent that the progress narrative of gender situates the critique of the category of women as outside the struggle to produce and evince the political agency of women, it has not only misunderstood the founding paradigm, but consecrated its self-defining political superiority precisely by doing so. One need only look at the closing exhortation in Hortense Spiller's 1983 essay, Interstices, A Small Drama of Words, to see how the critique of universalist deployments of women is made on behalf of the aspirations of the founding paradigm, not outside it or as a means to bring its use to an end. She writes... In putting afoot a new woman, we delight in remembering that half the world is female. We are challenged, however, when we recall that more than half the globe's female half is yellow, brown, black, and red. I do not mean to suggest, she says, that white is an addendum, but rather only an angle on a thematic vision whose agents have the radical chance to help orchestrate the dialectics of a global new woman. As I see it, the goal is a global restoration and dispersal of power, unquote. All of this is to say, then, that the political purchase of the consensus narrative that renders women's differences the end of the category of women is designed to cleanse the present of political complicity and sustain the field's self-defining emancipatory capacity. The conceptual leaps involved here are expensive and extensive, as we are led to believe that every commitment to women as the horizon of the field can only be interpreted as an investment in the category's universalizing effects. Hence, scholarship conducted under the sign of women is taken to assume, as Auslander writes, and now we have a new universal to counter an old one, that differences among women, quote, were less salient than their common sex. 
But to seek to discern the commonality of common sex is not necessarily to believe that differences were or are less salient. On the contrary, it may be precisely because of the saliency of differences that one seeks to produce with great political passion a discourse and organizational program of common sex. To the cast the investment in the founding paradigm this way, right, as one that was hoping in the face of differences to think about common sex, not to think about common sex as a refusal to recognize differences, right? And that's to think about what people's investment in feminism was when they were writing, especially in the 70s and early 80s. It is also to refuse, and I want to say two important things, it's to refuse to think about it this way, is to refuse the now sedimented equation between the aspiration to wield women as a political unity and racism and homophobia. You know, all my undergraduates take the category of women to be a racist and homophobic one. That's partially what I'm arguing with, right? And that the only way that you can escape racism and homophobia is to particularize. So that, and so that the whole history of the struggle over the category is rendered mute by the category's failure. And two, you know, that what comes with this um, is the consequential assumption that the flight from the category of women is the necessary political resolution to racism and homophobia. There may be much more to be gained by paying attention to the operations of sameness and difference in specific instances, so as to explore precisely when women's deployment was or is a political aspiration to overcome differences, as in the Spiller's quote I gave you, and when it is a refusal to grant those differences their analytic or political due. This would allow a far more nuanced taxonomy of racism in the history of the field to emerge, one that could, for instance, I think, calibrate the political elasticity and subjective complexity of white racial formation in ways that exceed the repeated description of racism to the universalizing blindness of normative whiteness. Indeed, as the complex negotiation of differences in the U.S., might show, especially in the past 30 years, the generic logic of unmarked universalism is not the only means by, white, by which white hegemony is secured. It can arrive cloaked in the discourse of diversity, multiculturalism, or difference itself, and even feature as its author the racialized or sexualized subject who is now rather ruthlessly bound to appearing only in that role. In these contexts, both critical and cultural, the left political aspiration for difference to lead to the resolution of inequality and hierarchy is undone by the cultural struggle waged over its meaning in the complex cultural processes of historical change itself. In other words, and I don't know if this is going to be clearer, but I'm just, if the use of women yielded too much sameness at the price of obscuring differences within identity, the turn to center differences has brought with it its own problems not the least of which is an impoverished equation that to talk about differences is to be against even outside of universalism and its exclusivist effects. Indeed, nearly every critique of the exclusivist occupations of women reassures its readers, or nearly every, um, that attending to differences is the means to overcome exclusion. But the political desire to transcend exclusion altogether is a universalist desire different to be sure from the metaphysical in, uh, inscriptions arising from U.S. feminism's historical convergence with Western humanism, but committed nonetheless to the process, or the prospect of endless inclusion. 
This is the promise, and I would add, the irresolvable contradiction of the discourse of intersectionality, which is steeped in a rhetorical rejection of universalism through its critique of singular axes of identity and power, but consecrated by a universalist desire to found a comprehensive, non-exclusive articulation of the workings of power. I'm interested in what would it mean if we thought about intersectionality's own universalist desire so that we're not constantly just pointing to where universalism comes from. And I'm not against universalist desire. I think that you can't do politics without it. And, you know, so that these easy gestures in which we think we can dismiss it, um, well, like I said, they're easy in order to do it. While much more can be said about the progress narrative, and intersectionality is a contemporary progress narrative, is now used to write, the point I want to emphasize is that identity and difference are not opposed to one another. Their relation is not analogous to the terms by which universalism is set against particularity and difference, or the way inclusion is taken as the opposite of exclusion. While there is enormous comfort in the belief that any critical practice that eventuates in political complicity was invested in it all along, and by that I'm talking about how we now, you know, by rewriting the problem of women as the failure of the category that believed in common sex at the expense of being interested in difference, by, by believing that story that we now tell, that no one was interested in difference when they spoke about women, right? We get to believe that there was that that people were complicit from the get-go, and now that allows us to regenerate our faith, to use all slander, in a critical practice that that we will come up with that won't also be complicitous. Or at least that's part of the the structure of the progress narrative, regardless of whether we turn to gender or intersectionality or what I'm going to talk about briefly in the next section, interdisciplinarity. The field has many progress narratives, um, in part because the disciplinary apparatus of the field produces progress as the political imaginary in which we um, operate, it seems to me. So where does this lead or leave us? Am I saying then that we must refuse the progress narrative by working harder to grasp the complexity, or especially the progress narrative of gender, by working harder to grasp the complexity of women, to think of it less as a gendered identity than as a political aspiration, one that once functioned to name the field's investment in translating feminism from the realm of social movement to academic inquiry? You know, well, as much as that's the reading I gave you, it's not that is not on its own going to undo the progress narrative precisely because it's easy to say that if we just get beyond the progress narrative, we'll actually get somewhere. You see what I'm saying? That you know, this gesture of trying to figure out how to resolve the problem in the way that critical practice now poses it, such that we keep having faith that critical practice is the domain of that resolution, is that's the imaginary of, of the political of progress that I'm trying to get at. So even though I really want us to reclaim the complexity of the category of women and the scholarship in the field, and I really want people to try to understand the context of contestation around the category of women in the 60s and 70s, especially, and early 80s, especially in the U.S., such that, you know, women doesn't remain the exclusivist domain of privilege, you know, so that we can actually write the critiques of by women of color and lesbians into the field as part of its founding formulation and the crisis that is created by the incompat the uh, what the incommensurability to be what women people wanted from women and what it was able to yield like and deal with that it, that's not going to be enough 
Like, that won't solve the problems I'm talking about. That'll ju- that could just turn into another progress narrative, right? And we'll get beyond it, and then we'll figure out how to everything to be okay today. So, um, partly this is because what I'm trying to diagnose in this chapter is the disciplinary structure within which the progress narrative sits. Okay, so it's not external to the field. It's now a disciplinary apparatus. So the third section is called Critical Realism. And I'm not going to have time to read it to you. Aren't you happy? Um, no. But uh, So let me just see if I have to tell you a little bit about it, and then I'll go to my last section about when gender fails. So this, this section of the paper looks at the progress narrative that's invested in intersection or in interdisciplinarity. Partly because I, what I wanted to do was to move away from an object of study and look at how the progress narrative of the field is inhabited in something that seems, you know, fairly apolitical, say, right, and interdisciplinarity, though there's a great deal of political aspiration attached to it. And in particular, I look at this essay by Judith Allen and Sally Kitch that's called Disciplined by the Disciplines, question mark, the need for an interdisciplinary research mission in women's studies. It's cited in a lot of conversations in women's studies and gender studies in the U.S. And in it, it's saying that the field needs to move away from being the institutional form of women's studies needs to be uh, departmental, have your own faculty lines, et cetera, because that's the only way to achieve true interdisciplinarity. And true interdisciplinarity will allow the field to fulfill its feminist aspirations um, in order to have a comprehensive knowledge project that's not partial in the way that the disciplines are. And so much of the, the, the essay is trying to you know, set up that conversation. And the example they take is violence against women and why no discipline would be adequate to dealing with the, with the problem of violence against women. And they use that to say that that's why you need an interdisciplinary structure, a set of a research mission, and because you need that in order to deal with violence against women, you need to have a departmental structure with your own faculty lines, money for a nice institute, PhD programs, et cetera. And what I'm interested in is how this, how the institutional product, the institutionalization and the institutional form is connected in their essay with the political capacity of the field to do justice to the problem of violence against women, right? So, and I show how that seems to me to be very symptomatic of this disciplinary predisposition, almost, it's not pre, this disciplinary disposition of the field to, that produces its um, institutional forms, relation to object study, of study, and even its uh, departmental or programmatic um, status in relationship to the question of justice and justice to women. That's why the title of this chapter is called Doing Justice with Objects, right, or with the Entities. So um, I have a lot to say about the mythology uh, that the field has around interdisciplinarity as giving us something that the disciplines don't about the partiality of disciplines and the greater complexity of interdisciplinarity and all that, but I'm not going to do that because of time. Um, I'm just going to read to you... um, well, I won't even do that. I'll just tell you, when I say critical realism, the reason that this section is called critical realism is what I'm trying to get at is the, um, the idea that, uh, uh, that critical practice can produce and reflect and do justice to the relations of the social world that we use critical practice to study. And the, often 
So that in the kitchen, in their argument, when they take up violence against women as their object, I take that as a critical realist move, right? Because they're saying that the institutional apparatus around this object of study is the only way to transform that object of study as it exists as a problem, as a social problem in the world. They don't take responsibility for their constitution of violence against women as their privileged object of study, right? So for them, it's not an object of study. It's the problem of violence against women in the world. And in that, that's a kind of critical realist move where the structure of the disciplinary apparatus of the critical practice is taken as the same thing as the problem as it exists in the world. Now, you have to recognize that I am trained as a humanist. And so discourse mediates for me the relation to the real. So the referent for the phenomenon is not the same thing as the phenomenon, okay? We can argue, and that's a disciplinary habit. But in women's studies, many times, the relation to the category becomes the relation to the object. We can get rid of the category, and then we get rid of that problem. And that's sort of what I'm trying to diagnose here. Women's studies is not alone in doing this, right? It is not alone in constructing a disciplinary apparatus contingent on the political demand that inaugurated its existence as a field of study. Every knowledge project that takes itself as pursuing a field formation commensurate with its political needs is bound up in generating a disciplinary apparatus that can produce, protect, and sustain its political imaginary. And that's why the bigger book from which this is drawn has chapters on American studies, on the intersection between feminism and queer theory, on queer theory itself, and on intersectionality, right, and on ethnic studies, on these different domains that take as the self-definition their political capacity and their political project, that define themselves as different from the traditional disciplines because of their political commitment. So that's what I'm interested in. And the U.S. identity knowledges all have that history. I know that's not true everywhere, right? I know that, and I've heard people talk in Eastern Europe about gender, its status as not necessarily having that connect, they're having to produce the connection to social movement as a different way of thinking about its own historicity. If I sound critical then of this, of this disciplinary apparatus, it is not because I'm seeking a political imaginary free from disciplinarity, or conversely because I want an institutional project free from politics. I don't think there's such a thing as either. But I am trying to emphasize how the progress narrative that is intrinsic to many fields operates as a cover story for the very disciplinarity that they incite and perform, first on their objects of study and their analytics that it commits itself to, and second on the practitioners, us, who earn our credibility by reproducing the assumptions, convergences, and effective relations that the field begets. In calling the structure of this disciplinarity critical realism, I mean to foreground how the transferential relations which underwrite the progress narrative in many of its forms are contingent on a set of conflations between the dispositions and deployments of critical practice on one hand and the complexities and political emergencies of social life on the others, on the other, others' hands, five hands here. These conflations arise not from analytical mistakes, no matter how decisively the pedagogy of critical realism has taught us otherwise, such that we work to correct an analysis or to correct our object of study or our analytic as the means to attend to the problem it comes to represent. 
The point of my discussion is not to seek to dispense with critical realism or simply to expose its routines and ruses. I have been more interested in understanding the disciplinarity that founds it and in reading this disciplinarity as both a consequence and figure of the political aspirations that underlie and over-determine the field's self-legitimating narratives, interpretive reflexes, theoretical itineraries, object priorities, and modes of redress. In short, the critical rationalities through which a field reproduces itself and confers authority on the practitioners who speak in its name. That such authority is both the outcome and measure of practices of governance born in the political desire, of course, to escape governmentality and the rule of institutional law altogether is not an indictment of academic practices or projects that stand in historical, ideological, or narrative relation to social movements. It is not an indictment because the point here is not about forwarding an argument that reveals our normative routines in order to make a case for what would be better, right? I'm not trying to produce another progress narrative as if the agency of outthinking everything that has made us is ours alone. I have wanted instead to inhabit not simply the hegemony of critical realism in women's studies, but what it is made of me, which is why I must acknowledge at such a late point here, of course, that the chapter carries its own field-forming hope that critical accounts of the field, other than those staked to progress, will come to be told, and that the dilemmas that accompany the demand for commensurability will be as compelling someday as the political promise the demand now holds. If in this revelation I enact precisely what I seek to discern, that is surely not beside the point, given that this chapter wants to take the power of our disciplinary belief in critical practice as seriously as we do. I mean, by this I'm trying to say is that, you know, it's a, it's a gesture of always, that one of uh, the gestures in the field is to point out that somebody enacts the very thing they're critiquing, and when we point that out, we think that we have somehow made a really important point, right? <laughs> so that if Judith Butler can go, if you read Gender Trouble, now I'll give you the Butler, if you read Gender Trouble, most of those chapters take a critical f- set of thought, or and especially a critical theorist, as far as she can before she feels that she runs into where their um, theory undoes itself according to whatever her political desire is that she's tracing in that chapter, right? And it's at the moment where a lot of times, you know, she'll say that Foucault undoes himself by the contradiction in which he actually instantiates the very problem that he's trying to write himself out of. And it's at that moment then that um, we're taught our own projects begin, right? I mean, many times, is by showing that somebody is reiterating what... And I'm kind of interested in what it would mean to have critical practices that recognize that we can't not do that. That we're all going to actually repeat and reproduce the very thing that we that shapes the critical practice that we're engaged in. And so pointing out when other people do it is not really doing a whole lot other than a kind of ego management. No, and it's a fantasy of our own political agency in those moments. What I want to know is why does the field teach us that that's part of what our... The di- that's part of what we do. That's how we read, you know. That's how, and that's how we're supposed to write. We're supposed to point out what, where somebody fails in order to figure out how to correct the mistake that's been made. And that's the progress narrative in its most, you know, in its smallest, most everyday kind of idiom is how it exists in how we read and how we write. So, um, the last section, and I know this is getting long, so it's called "And When Gender Fails," and I'm not going to read it because you all have been too great at listening to this so far and it's longer than I wanted it to be. But what I what I do in this last section is just to say that, you know, gender of course will fail if it hasn't already failed, if it's 
you know, to be adequate to the belief or the faith in it. I mean, even in Auslander, even as she's producing her hope, she marks the worries that she has, right? So that these turns to different kind of critical capacities, and you can see it in a lot of ways. It's not just women to gender. It's from the national to the transnational. It's from the liberal to the neoliberal. Early on, it was from modern to postmodern. I mean, there's ways in which the critical currency or the signature move, or it's from Foucault to Agamben, right? I mean, it's from, you know, there are these moves in which we then attach a great deal of political aspiration around their ability to resolve the problems that we're tracing. So I'm very frustrated now with the way that the transnational is being evacuated of how it was early on used to now, you know, universities use it all the time, international, right? These terms that then can start to mean everything until they mean nothing. But what's interesting is the political desire that brings them into being and people wanting a critical practice that's going to be adequate to the failures of the one that came before. I totally understand that. I mean, I live within that political desire, right, to get out of and to escape the moment that we're in and to escape the incapacity of the present, right, and the political emergency that we live in. What I'm trying to think about without becoming anti-theoretical is the disciplinary apparatus, you know, within which that political desire is now institutionalized in identity knowledges and in the field especially of women and gender studies, you know, such that several generations of people are now being taught to read and write within that frame and to take critical practice as a political agency without the hard kind of conversations about what is the culture of the political that conditions critical practice today, you know. I mean, because one of the things Eva Chernowsky has written about, and I think she's right, she has a new piece from this summer in social text called Neo-Citizenship that, you know, critique the pointing out ideology critique, as it used to be called, but critique pointing out the problem of an analysis, you know, even in the public sphere, let alone in the academic one, doesn't necessarily change the conditions by which people then proceed. That people have, that the order of the political may be that people know, for instance, in the U.S. context, that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but it does not change the course of events around that war, right? So that knowing and the ability of the subject to know and to have a critical apparatus all the years of trying to have criticality is not necessarily having a powerful aim in the order of the political as it is now structured. I have to think a lot more and do more writing about what that order of the political might be, the conditions of the political present, but I think that that's the challenge for us. I have two minutes. I'm just going to stop there and let you ask me, you know, questions about this, and thank you for listening. Thank you so much, Robin. I didn't mean my two-minute warning to put you off entirely. Thank you very much for an incredibly insightful talk, and I think my head is spinning in terms of the kinds of questions I want to ask. So I'm just going to throw it open to the audience to begin the conversation based on the generosity of your talk and the kind of openness with which you've engaged a whole range of issues that I know lots of people here are also thinking about. 
Um, so if you'd like to ask a question, please, um, or make a comment, or, or um, otherwise contribute, please, please raise your hand. Sarah. Um, Sarah Franklin from uh, LSA. Um, thank you very much for that incredibly rich and provocative talk. Um, and I really look forward to reading the book very much. Um, I just wanted, because you mentioned a number of times your um, own disciplinary background in the humanities, and I just wondered in terms of where the progress narrative that, as you rightly say, there isn't any out of um, because even to get out of it would be a progress narrative in yeah. a way. Um, the best progress narrative <laughs> would be to get out of it. Um, yeah. Still, there's, there's a direction in a way to a progress narrative. And I, I wondered if the direction seemed, even in your title, which references citation, often to be oriented towards inscription or even writing or text. And I, I wondered if the toward of the progress was instead uh, a conversation, a dialogue, um, whether um, the question of repeating um, the problem might look a bit different. For example, <laughs> speaking of difficult progress narrative, um, for example, if you had the classroom and pedagogy as your model um, as as much as um, the canon, as it were, um, whether whether some of these problems might look different. And it's, it's just a question about whether writing and inscription and text are, are figuring very prominently in your account and, and might look a bit different if it was more about conversation and dialogue in the classroom. I think that that's absolutely true. Um, Although what I would, I think that the that the fact that it for uh, women and gender studies and in its institutional form is now so um, emphasizing doctoral training, um, not just I mean, and that especially in the U.S. it's now the sign of like the field's capacity to actually intervene in the institution in the long haul, right? To be able to produce practitioners that the, the emphasis there then on, on, right, on, on academic production um, and the value of it rises. And that that's so that it's, so that I would say that part of, it's not just the, that I'm, the emphasis on sort of writing and reading on interpretive modes and, and it's not just about my own humanities training but also about the way that the horizons of the field is being able to produce its own practitioners with academic production at the center of it, you know, of the value for in many places, even or of a kind of writing that, you know, so that people, even if they go to NGOs or if they go, you know, they don't become academics, that nonetheless it's about the capacity of producing policy documents or, you know, that, I mean, I, I do think that the textual in that sense is at the, foref you know, at the forefront. Now, one of the things I've been thinking that about are conferences, right? And the old women's studies, you know, older, like in the past when there were big, you know, kind of arguments and conversations that had it, that people had at conferences and the pedagogy of these spaces, you know, like, well, our pedagogy today is like terrible, right? 
to have a conversation. Um, because it's about, I mean, you know, I'm giving a talk, right? And you're going to ask me questions. I mean, hopefully maybe somebody could ask Sarah a question, but that's not, you know. So th there are the, the, the academic forum brings with it, right, certain kinds of elite notions of, of knowledge production. And um, when I've tried to break those down in the classroom, you know, many of my graduate students say, no, we have to learn how to do these before you deconstruct them. You know, because we're spending a lot of money, we're spending a lot of time trying to belong to a field and trying to get academic credibility. And it would be great not to have to inhabit why that desire may, you know, may put us on the wrong side of where we want to be before we can actually get there, right? You know, so, I mean, I, I think that the training in the field and the desire to be a practitioner, regardless even if you want to be an academic on, on the other side of it, it's still you have to perform that, those kinds of competencies. And that's a disciplinary apparatus that you have to inhabit. And I'm interested in how the political and a certain notion of the political might shape that discipline. Right? That I mean, that's clear that that's what I'm interested in. Now. But yeah. Hi. Uh, my name is Akhil. Uh, it it seems to me that there that there are two ways of coming together politically. One is on the basis of who we are whether women, whether gay, uh, kind of any identity politics, and another on the basis of the questions we share. Uh, because uh, one of the recent examples when the anti-sodomy law in India was removed, uh, one of the prominent gay rights activists said, I'm so glad that I don't have to stand together with those people who I always stood with just because they were gay. Because in a sense, it, it's the capacity to disband, the capacity to not unite is also a creative capacity. Uh, and that's because gay people do not do only gay politics or women people or women do not do only women politics in a sense let's say at a anti-war protest you would not want to stand with a right-wing woman or with a, a or at another protest you wouldn't want to stand with a racist gay man etc so I'm just saying when you said that universalist desires you can't do politics without that it seems you cannot I mean you said you can't but I'm saying you can't do it even with them and I mean there's always a way of uh, rethinking these questions. The other thing, uh, where you constantly talk about that we are always going to repeat, there's a kind of running. Uh, uh, sort of later in the later in your talk when you talk about repetition, oh. that in some sense we are always going to repeat the debates that we think we are overriding with this progress narrative. I was just thinking there's a kind of uh, a kind of skepticism against the new, a kind of reigning suspicion of the new and impossibility of the new uh, or newer ways of thinking. And the last bit, I think this whole talk is in some sense structured by, and this has been my experience in the UK academia at least, about a kind of a reigning division which all of us live out between the academy and activism, uh, which uh, I think it gets even stronger in the US academic context. And uh, coming from uh, sort of uh, at least a few years back, coming from a South Asian context where acad the academy and activism almost inhabit each other, uh, where the questions being asked are equally urgent. Uh, this debate, uh, in some sense, uh, is irrelevant. So I was just thinking, if you could just talk about these three points. Thanks. You want me to talk about the irrelevance of my the talk I just gave? That's what you just asked me to do. That's the next time you just asked the first. Oh no. Well, actually, I think that the latter is more interesting. You know, I mean, in the sense that. Um, 
Because, see, there would be a counter-argument for, at least in the U.S., that while there is this long-standing debate about the relationship between the academy and activism, there's also a reproduction of that debate as a way to keep reigniting the political capacity of academia, right, through the critique of activism that both lives within it and outside of it. The critique around activism is not outside. It's not a division that's in or out. It's an internal division as much as it is a division in the social world between intellectual or academic work, which are not the same thing but sometimes are, right, and practices, you know, and political practices. So I've been particularly interested in the academy, the debate around activism, right, and the push within the field around activism because I think it's precisely that notion or what that, the project of trying to make critical practice speak to activism that's part of the disciplinary structure of the political that I'm trying to talk about, right, so that that split is not outside now of the disciplinarity of these fields. And in another chapter in this project, I'm trying to talk about the divergence between social movement and academic knowledge formation and why divergence is okay and we can learn to live with it instead of the demand for convergence. So when you say the questions we share, the way in which questions are shared are very disparate across social spheres and domains of articulation. And the academy is an institution that is both porous but also has its own kind of, you know, rules and practices, et cetera. And so when it constitutes a question that may be shared elsewhere and may in fact come from elsewhere, those questions go through, right, the institutional form and are transformed in that. I mean, I think that they do become other kinds of questions. My concern for these identity knowledge fields is that the present scene of politics should not always be where the locus of the urgency of the questions we ask lies in order to say, because when we, but I think that we often use the present locus of politics to produce that urgency in order to deal with the anxiety that we're in elite institutions that are displaced from real politics and from what the world needs. Like it's the, you know, it's the guilt of that, you know, or it's an anxiety that it's not really political. And so then you have these compensatory practices that want to make, you know, some people will say critical practice is activism. I don't, I won't say that. You know, post-structuralist thought is not activism. You know, or even the study of, you know, sex work, which a lot of my students want to do as a way to get to real women. It's not activism, but it is a study of sex work, right? I mean, and it may be useful to somebody who's doing activism with sex, you know, in sex work context. It may actually be part of an activist agenda by somebody who works in those networks. But in, you know, in itself, I don't know that we should want to make those claims. So I'm actually for a kind of a much more, I think the grammar of the political that we use in the academy, I mean, and my own is impoverished. And that the political operates in many different kinds of domains and has different temporalities. And the temporality of both social movement and a community organizing or what we call as activism today is both historically bounded and specific and has its own temporality. I also do think that critical practice has a politics. 
and that it can be engaged in politics, but it's not in that same way and in that same domain. And I would like to see, you know, work that wants to look at the, the you know, the differences between them in order to have a, a, a much more expansive, I guess, I mean, here's a progress, I guess progress could come from this, but I'm just interested in a more expansive understanding of the political because I actually think that the choice between what now stands as the academic and the activist are themselves rather, you know, limited, can be very narrow. You know, and especially in the U.S. where it's, a, it's activism in a very specific late 20th century frame you know, that has certain coordinates and that that becomes kind of the register in which the political is understood. And so that then the demand on critical practices that it always can convert into that or a lament about it or an idea that it are it is that in some way. And, you know, all of those kinds of mergers don't, don't seem finally productive at this point. I, I can see um, one question at the front, but because we've only got sort of seven or eight minutes, if other people also have questions, I'll, I'll take a series of questions at this point and then uh, give Robin a couple of minutes to, to respond. So, so there's, there's a question down here. Are there other questions or comments people want to ask? We'll take Maria's then and come back to it. Um, I, it's... I'm, I'm very aware of the, how limited we are in, in terms of time, which is usually a difficulty in itself, but then when, when one's mind is reeling after a discussion like yours, it's even harder to sort of make sense. Um, and I don't, I don't quite know what my question is, but I was thinking, I was, or if there is, even is a question, that's precisely my question, is that I don't know what the question is. Okay, I'll, I'll explain. Okay. <laughs> Bear with me. Um, you were talking about conferences and, and, and the, the sort of formalized mode of engagement at conferences and, and what that means and what that, and what that does. And I was thinking that certainly three dominant tropes of um, questioning of someone who speaks at a conference, especially in gender studies, but not only in gender studies, is to ask, well, um, how, as you say, what about this problem or contradiction or absence in your work? Or to ask, um, so how do we do that then? Mm. Or to ask, well, but how does that apply to me? Or does that apply to me? Now, um, funnily enough, I have all these three types of questions in relation to your work. But also what's interesting is that your talk sort of predicted that I would have these three types of questions and positioned them as potentially um, problematic or questions that we would want to question. So what's really interesting is, um, uh, I feel like I'm making less and less sense, but what's really, really interesting they is... They seem to get it, yeah. No. What, what's really, really interesting is that what is both... Um, and a project that I absolutely identify with of, of opening things also becomes one of almost making then questioning or critique very difficult because, you, because one has so insightfully analyzed the workings of that critique. And, and so then until we learn a better form of, of critique and there's a progress narrative and, and also the question about how does that apply to me as, as a graduate student and, and while one is learning to that, how... When, see, there, I, what, what, I, I think what I, it's, it's precisely that point at which I can no longer ask these questions that I'm used to asking because they have been revealed as, as problematic in all sorts of ways. So it's both opening but also um, um, limiting of the engagement in its attempt to be so opening, which 
which is which is, sounds like a critique, but it's but <laughs> you said I would critique that. The paper that. is irrelevant; it's established. <laughs> no. But I agree. You, I mean, it's, it's, it's yeah. precisely that um, you said that I would that we are tempted to then point out the contradictions, which is what I've just yeah. done, basically. Right. Yeah. Which is why you feel you don't have a question. Yes. Right. Precisely. You're right. Yeah. So I mean, look. Here's the thing, too. Um, this is just one project. That's one set of readings. That is not actually about you having, you know, like globalizing your relation to the field through this reading, right? I mean, that's what I would say, that, that even if you have been taught to ask or to um, encounter what somebody says in that way, does it fulfill all of my political desires? Does it speak to my disciplinary training? Does it speak to my identity? Does it speak to my political attachments? Does it have utility in the world? Can it travel outside the academy and have some kind of effect? Is it speaking to the political emergency of the present, right? I mean, we bring that to, like, one thing in a chapter, and I mean in a talk, even, as truncated as this might be. And that's an interesting aspect of how the, of the political imaginary of the field that puts that kind of pressure on everything we do. It's a wonder that we can write it all. Now, because, I mean, and it's, you know, last year when I was here, I talked about the voices that I hear. You know, in my head, and I was, I mean, it's not that I'm psychotic. I mean, well, it might be, but it's not that, but it is that you hear these voices. I mean, part of it is those, all of the voices that say, but what about this? What about that? What about this? You know, that undermine you as you go. So, I mean, this is a disciplinary performance of having heard for 25 years now these kinds of questions, you know, and the stuff I cut out has more of the questions in them, like more of the kind of objections, more of, you know, and it's about incorporating all those objections. Where does that get us? This is a highly academic, and in that sense, I, I totally agree. I'm not making fun of that. It is irrelevant to a certain set of larger issues completely. It's about the institutional forms by which identity knowledge is, and especially gender, has been produced as a field of study. You know, um, but for many people undergoing that set of instructions, it will have some value, whatever its value might be, right? You know, and I'm struggling with becoming the product of this of this history, where you know, a certain set of political feminist political attachments took me into the university at a time when it was imagined that that was a stage, you know, of political transformation and that we would change the university. And the apparatus and the institutional forms and the politics of the university and its incapacity, you know, with political movement and with everyday life, all of those things, you know, 25 years later, you're kind of going, wow, you know, middle-aged ennui in its own kind of thing. You know, no, I'm serious. I mean, I don't mean to undermine that, but it becomes like, well, it, it certainly has not been the thing I thought it would be, right? Like, and so here I am with all this political desire and a set of, and a disciplinary apparatus that allows me to perform it over and over, but I'm tired of the repetition. Which doesn't mean I want progress out of it. I guess, I mean, because I actually believe, you notice there's a psychoanalytic idiom in my talk. You know, I'm interested in psychoanalysis, not as a hermeneutic, not as a, a way of reading, like I don't believe in questions whether Freud was right or not. But I am interested in that some kinds of good psychoanalysis, what they teach you is just to, you know, recognize yourself before others do quite, you know, so fully, you know. And to, and, and, and to come to some kind of, you know, if you will, to come to terms with that, you know. So that the goal is not to get well or not to get over yourself or not to change all these things, but to recognize, you know, 
that you are kind of being yourself in these moments, you know. And so as an intellectual subject, there's a history to that subject formation. It is not my identity formation. It is different from it. It's not unrelated, but it's not the same thing as that because there's an intellectual, you know, this long, this life in, you know, learning to read and practices and all that, you know, produces me as a kind of intellectual subject, and I'm interested in that apparatus. I've spent a lot of time thinking about the apparatus of my social subjectivity, right, as white, as queer, you know, as American, as middle class, as female, you know, and the field has given me a lot to read that, but less to read the intellectual subject and the intellectual subject form. It's not that they're not related, but they are not completely commensurate, and that's what's interesting to me about the field because the apparatus wants to make those commensurabilities, you know. And, you know, but also let me just say, too, that the other thing that I'm really interested in is trying to restore the thickness of the political moment in which other people lived prior to the political emergency we now live in and the difficulty of their negotiation in those moments. You know, instead of kind of glib dismissals that we know, you know, that they made bad choices. And, you know, because I think that that's, and this is where learning doesn't have to be about progress. I mean, that we could actually be interested in what people face that is not what we have to face or that is different or, you know, or the open political possibilities in a different moment that were then, you know, shut down, made impossible by historical forces, you know, stuff like that that might be. But, you know, because I'm concerned that our field is too presentist as well. I'm going to sort of draw the discussion to a close by suggesting that if psychoanalysis is one way of resolving some of the questions in the field, then happily alcohol is also another time-honored way of resolving questions in academic practice, quite seriously, actually. And to invite you up to the fifth floor of the main building for your drink of choice, but also let us thank Robin again for both her paper and her journey. Thank you all. Thank you.